1: right rug flooring.
2: Hey everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
3: I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Child sex trafficking has been called the ugliest preventable man-made disaster in the world. Over a million children are sold each year as sex slaves into an industry that is said to be worth billions of dollars. Sex trafficking overall is one of the most lucrative crimes on Earth. Second only to the global drug trade The numbers are horrific But sometimes numbers that size Have a way of obscuring the greater horror Behind each number is a person, a victim Whose individual story is ghastly New York Times op-ed columnist Nicholas Kristof Recently told the story of Shre Pove A Cambodian girl who was sold by her mother to a brothel Her virginity went to the highest bidder she was six years old. For the following three years, she was forced to have sex with up to 20 men a day. Stories like Shrey aren't limited to Southeast Asia. They happen in Africa, Europe, and right here in the United States. My guest, Rob Morris, works to protect young people like Shrey around the world. Rob is president and co-founder of Love 146, an organization that fights to prevent child sex slavery and provide aftercare for its victims. Rob has been doing humanitarian work most of his life. But ten years ago, when a musician friend of his said his band wanted to take on the issue of child sex trafficking, Rob was oblivious.
4: I had honestly never heard of child trafficking before and then started looking at it. Um, we you were, had never heard of it at all? I had never heard of it. I was given the impression back in high school that slavery ended with something that we call the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. But the reality is it hasn't.
3: Not long after that initial conversation, Rob and his friend took an exploratory trip to Southeast Asia to see how they could help with the issue. They were given about an hour of training before they entered a brothel pretending to be John's. Men who wanted to purchase young girls for sex. It was the most disturbing experience of my life because
4: here I am having to learn how to pose as the very thing that everything in me is completely and utterly repulsed by. As a human being, as a father, as a man. And I remember them saying, look, if you don't think you can hold it together, if you're going to freak out and when you see what you're going to see, don't go in because we can't risk an investigation being taken down because of your reaction. We're brought into a room, and we're looking through these glass windows. They call it a fishbowl at young girls, and they were sitting watching children's cartoons on television sets, and they had the dignity of a name taken from them. They just had numbers pinned to their dresses. And on this side of the glass, we were shoulder to shoulder with what I would describe as predators who were purchasing these kids for sex. Were There's, they
3: predominantly what was they, their— This
4: was a brothel that catered particularly to Westerners. They looked like anybody— could you tell language-wise where Probably they are from? Americans, Europeans. The stats, the latest stats that I've read are they say that about 25% of sex tourists are American men. Okay. I'm hearing the voice of this investigator in my head who said, if you don't think you can hold it together, because everything in me instinctively wants to smash through the glass and get as many of these kids out of there. And we couldn't do it because there was an investigation taking place that they had to get enough evidence together. Exactly. So it was incredibly disturbing. And, And the thing that so shook me was the looks in the eyes of the kids. There was nothing left there, man. They were so emotionally shut down, no life in their eyes except for one kid. It must have been new to the brothel because there was still a fight left in her eyes. She was the only one that was not looking at the children's cartoon. She was staring at us through the glass. Never forget those eyes. Defiant, fights. would you say? Oh, there was a fight. I have not given up yet. Her number was 146 that was just sort of emblazoned there in our brains. And so, yeah, so that's who that's who we fight for, and she represents the Burrus. And you name the organization Love 146. We actually named the organization at that time Justice for Children International, and then after a few years we changed the name, partly because I, Mother Teresa used to say this and said it so well. She said, if I didn't pick up the one off the streets of Calcutta, I never would have picked up the 40,000. And so when we look at the stats, the numbers, and we throw these things out there, there's a dehumanizing that takes place. We forget that this is it's not about an issue. It's not about a cause. This is about somebody's daughter. This is about somebody's son, little boy, little girl. And sometimes we get just sucked into the stats, and we're throwing these things around like we're not talking about human beings. And so that's why even renaming the organization its a reminder to us that this is about a girl. This is about a child.
3: This is about all those children that she represents. Is there something about the culture in Southeast Asia and in other parts of the world that the government really won't put their shoulder into stopping this? I I don't think so. I mean, there are always advocates. There are
4: always people, and that's who we look for. What do
3: you think prevents a country like the Thai government from doing a better job at extinguishing these practices? I think it's just will
4: and recognizing that this is an issue that we need to deal with. And again, I don't want to just single out Thailand. I mean, it's it's the same thing when we look at here in the U.S. I think it's not just— a cultural thing. We're talking about poverty. We're talking about marginalized people. We're talking about places of conflict. Or even when you see something like a, a natural disaster in a place. The first people on the scene in Haiti after well, I was the earthquake, ask you about that. it wasn't aid workers. It, it, they were traffickers.
3: Are they indigenous Haitian people? or Again, I think it's people that are looking for opportunity. How can I make a buck? So men and maybe some women who are in the sex for hire business, they're in the prostitution business, the earthquake comes. they the are there in Haiti, and they said to ourselves, this is our big chance. We're, we're going to make a killing here. Yeah, and, I mean, it's estimated that the trafficking of human beings basically generates
4: between $12 and, and $32 billion a year. It's profitable. You have the same situation happening here when it's vulnerability. You've got pimps luring girls from, from bus stations. They come here. They don't have a place to stay. Looking for something to eat, perhaps come from a broken home, and this pimp comes in as the knight in shining armor. And it's all good at first. I'll give you a place to stay, give you food, I'll take care of you, I'll be your daddy. And here's a girl that's either had an abusive father or maybe not even a father in her life. And this guy's telling her the things that she's always wanted to hear a father say You're beautiful,
3: you're special. And in the United States, many of these people are coming out of foster care systems. They're people who are runaways from that system. Vulnerability. Basically, that's the bottom line is
4: it's about vulnerability. So where are their vulnerable children? Foster care system,
3: runaways, throwaway teens. And there are hundreds of thousands of people working every year. Between the ages, I was told, of 11 and 14 years old is the average age that where they start. Yeah. The, a child usually enters into
4: the trafficking situation or prostitution. The average age is anywhere between 13 and 15 years of
3: age. In the United States. Right.
4: And the statistics are really dangerous. They, the, unfortunately, there's not a lot of really good, solid research. You'll hear numbers from everywhere from 100,000 kids at risk for commercial sexual exploitation to 300,000. Because it's, the issue is such an an in-the-shadows kind of issue. Many times victims don't come forth or they're arrested as criminals. In most states, a 15-year-old is picked up for prostitution. They're arrested um, as a criminal and thrown into jail. The next day, the pimp
3: bails them out and they're back in the situation. So they're
4: not even counted as a victim of trafficking.
3: So people who are in the ranks of this vulnerable group of people in the foster care system and uh, so forth, are there people who are working on the fringes of that system or perhaps even within the system itself who function as pimps and shills, and, and they develop talent, if you will, inside that business? Is that a big pro- problem? Wow, this that's a that's a huge question. I think um, pimps,
4: traffickers, johns, whatever, any of those categories, will look for places where they can get easy access to Such vulnerable. As? I mean, we've seen something happen just recently in the news with Penn State. So coaches, people in ministry, you know, pastors, priests, mm-hmm. you see what. Um, camp counselors, teachers in the news who've gone in that direction. It's an easy situation because
3: they get e- easy access and they sometimes come with trust built in. Explain to the audience then how someone, I mean, what are signs maybe that parents or peers or other people involved in the lives of these children can see? What is the mechanism by which we cross over from mentor in a relationship and becomes a sexual relationship? Is there a language that people are using? Or have you even been involved in any research of this or seen any research about it? Yeah,
4: I think that I think that's a really legitimate question. I mean, I think there are signs to look for if it's your own teenager with withdrawing, status. spending an inordinate amount of times. I mean, it's inappropriate for a kid to be spending time alone with, and that's my thinking. With a teacher at their house, that's just a no-brainer. So that's to me. what you see happening. Oh yeah, that's. I mean, that's what we've seen happen. That's what <clears> continues <throat> to happen. And, and uh, so these the people
3: that are these predatory or potentially predatory people in terms of child sex abuse, it begins with excessive or significant amounts of time alone with the child. They they get them alone. Mm -hmm. And that's when they begin to develop this relationship that then they cross this line and lead them by the hand, if you will, into a sexual relationship.
4: Yeah. And again, what happens in the mind of what could be described as a predator is beyond my comprehension. I don't think anybody wakes up at 45 years of age or 50 years of age and says, I'm going to have sex with a child. Right. There is a grooming that takes place over years and years. And that's what we're seeing now. And even when it comes to um, media and grooming, where media has normalized the objectification of women and girls, and that leads in some realms to exploitation. Kids are watching videos where you have a glorification of pimp culture, where it's t- totally, like, okay to watch a music video where you have a guy walking women that are hardly dressed with chains around their necks or somebody swiping a credit card down a girl's crack in a video.
3: Do you recognize that our society is far more sexualized when you were growing up? Or was it, twas was ever thus? Oh, man, I think things have changed very, so? very
4: quickly. I think you're seeing images portraying uh, women younger and younger. Somebody was telling me about this show that's on TV where they have these kids in these beauty and you
3: don't dress a five-year-old kid provocatively. That's just insanity. You know, one very, I don't want to say dated or tried and true, one traditional, if you will, component of this is, is the issue of sex education in schools or sex education in some way in our society where we really come get a little more honest with ourselves about the power of sexuality and the force that it is in our lives and and how much we need to face that in an ever increasingly younger group of people. Sex is something that you don't want to demonize. You don't want people to grow up thinking that sex is a bad thing or sex is an unhealthy thing because you're going to have a whole other set of problems when you do that. What's your opinion, if any, about the need for uh, recalibrating and rededicating ourselves to a serious sex education program in, in schools?
4: I think coming from our work we would love to see the issue of sexual exploitation be taught as a regular part of the curriculum of sex education it's usually not and so getting that as part of the taught curriculum what is exploitation what does it look like the schools that we've been going into it's amazing the lights that are turning on kids will be up afterwards saying this is happening to my friend by somebody who she thinks is her boyfriend i think it needs to be part of a sex education curriculum how do you protect yourself um, from being exploited
3: so that you're not in a place of vulnerability. Well, you see, that's fascinating to me that you say that because in the past, I mean, sex education to me, as I recall... In a biology class in the ninth grade, we had a sex education component. It was folded into uh, that class. It was almost like the duck and cover response to atomic bombing. You know, like they might as well have just had, you know, Eisenhower come in or Eleanor Roosevelt and teach us sex education. It was so dated. But what you're saying is even more interesting, which is to come into a room and start to teach kids at, at even in seventh and eighth grade, perhaps, and say to them, here are some of the dangers of sex and sex." exploitation Mm -hmm. because as i've said to my own daughter i have a 16 year old daughter and and my conversations with her about sex are guys will say anything to you some of them to get you to do what they want you to do and the real issue is that some of them are very good at it some of them will really sell you on the idea that doing what they want you to do is what you want to do and i wonder if a more sophisticated more evolved version of that is what we need in sex education classes which is to, to teach everybody here's where sex can get you in trouble yeah
4: and I, and I think challenging guys as well, challenging boys. You know, the definition of rock and roll from the school of rock is sticking it to the man. And basically, let me tell you what the man is doing. The man, the culture that we're living in, the hypersexualized culture, is grooming you to be this 45-year-old man someday. So if you want to stick to the man, rebel against that. Be your better self. I was in a school and in in teaching in a high school classroom on the issue of trafficking and, and exploitation. And, and there was a, a guy in the back of the class that was just sort of like smirking the whole time. And he's like, man, this sounds like a good business to... To go into and, you know, and, and your business. Oh, uh, uh, no, no. Uh, hey, I can oh, make some money here. He's right. like, this is lucrative, you know, because I was talking about some of the stats and, and the kind of money that's generated through, you know, the sale of human beings. And he's thinking, man, this sounds like a lucrative business, and he's making jokes and everything. And then I start to unpack about, you know, let me talk to you about what a pimp really is instead of this glorified picture that you see on your videos, and this is what a pimp looks like. And we talk about some of the kids that we work with. We have a girl in our safe home, Alec, that is deaf and mute. The idea that somebody would first take advantage of a child who is living in abject poverty and a child who couldn't even cry out for herself, could not even say anything about it, is insanity. This is what a pimp is. This is what a trafficker is. This is what they prey on. Somebody said, you know, these people are like animals. And I love I think it was Dostoevsky who who said, don't ever compare human beings to animals because it's an insult to animals because animals would never come up with the artistic cruelty that human beings come up with. That's the reality.
3: This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Coming up, more from my conversation with Rob Morris, one of the co-founders of Love 146.
2: Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
1: For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
3: This is Alec Baldwin. I'm talking with Rob Morris, one of the co-founders of Love 146, an organization that works to prevent child sex slavery around the world. Rob's organization focuses on prevention, providing aftercare for victims, and also works to pass legislation like the recent Safe Harbor Laws. At the bottom
4: line, a safe harbor law is designed to create a situation where it redefines anyone under the age of 18, in some cases 16, from being considered a criminal to being considered a victim. And so it's to protect. So um, instead of being – the 15-year-old being picked up for prostitution and being arrested, thrown into jail and bailed out by the pimp, this person now is, is to be perceived and looked at as a victim of human trafficking. According to federal law, anyone under the, under the age of 18 years of age, according to the federal law, um, cannot consent to being commercially sold for sacks. You can't do it. And so anyone under the age of 18, a safe harbor law, is supposed to be designed to say this person um, is a victim and not a criminal. And and that's what the safe harbor law is. How is it working? Are you in support of those laws? Absolutely. We helped um, push to get one passed in Connecticut. There's only, I believe, four or five states that actually have one. So, yeah, and it also increases the penalties for those purchasing sex, pimps, and traffickers.
3: Talk about the—I mean, for most people who are—who look into this issue, obviously the Internet has made a huge change in the way the sexual trafficking and and a whole cornucopia of sexually illegal activity is conducted. Talk, if you will, about how your organization and similar organizations consider that.
4: Yeah, I I actually spoke with um, a member of the NYPD here, and uh, he deals with the trafficking issue here in New York, and he just—he described the Internet as the new streets— That the day of where you see prostitution happening on street corners and all of that is coming to an end, and it's happening now on the internet. That's a big deal because then it becomes um, a situation where it's much more anonymous, much more difficult to
3: see and to track. You did – uh, some of this investigative work here in the U.S., the Korean spa story you were involved in. Oh, that was an accident. I was getting a tattoo, and it, the
4: place that I, I was uh, getting the ink, the downstairs, was a sauna and acupressure place with an Asian name to it. And the blinds were always closed. There was a one-way glass mirrored door. places are everywhere. Yeah. Knowing what I know, I'm just like, this looks really shady to me. Ask the people in the tattoo place, hey, what's going on downstairs? They're like, oh, we don't ask any questions. Didn't take rocket science. You know, you looked it up in the phone book, and it's got hours of operation at 3 o'clock in the morning. Nobody gets up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I think I'm going to go get some acupressure. It's sort of no-brainer stuff. One of my coworkers went on a site. There There are websites where Johns can rate their experiences with women that they've been with in a prostitution situation. And so they typed the name of this particular spa in, and so it's like it lit up. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like a Yelp for um, these kinds of services. And this place lit up all over the place. So we reported, we had uh, an advocate within the police department in, uh, in Connecticut who understood the trafficking issue. It took a long time, but they eventually ended up doing a raid. And sure enough, there were all kinds of funky things going in there, and specifically Korean women. None of them spoke English. The women were arrested and then the Johns were let go. They used the Johns for evidence, um, and the women were, were the ones that were arrested. And this is why even the safe harbor law is such a key thing for children, so that, hey, you know what? This is not a criminal. This is a victim. And that changes the perception and how we deal with them. About six months later, the, the place opened up again under a new name and basically is doing the same thing, again, because of the priority.
3: This is not, a, you know, there's people getting killed. We got to deal with that. Talk, with you would, about the Penn State scandal. You know, in my mind, when this happened, if Sandusky is proven guilty of a crime, which obviously it seems like there's a lot of evidence to point in that direction, what's the best thing to do with people like that? Like, wouldn't you love to get a guy like that in a conference room and grill him for about a month about everything he did and why, so we can learn more about it? I wonder if just taking these people and having the uh, our indignation at the fore and just shuttering them away somewhere and, and punishing them and making sure the world knows how we deal with these people. You get them out there and we try to kind of, we try to have some kind of forensic examination of him and what he did so we can learn from that. What do you think about that kind of thing? Well, I think, I think there's some power to deterrence in,
4: hey, you know what? You can face life in prison. I know Massachusetts just passed a law where a trafficker now can get life in prison. I think there is a good thing with that is is there's the deterrence factor. Like, oh, you know what? When I think about profit versus risk, the risk just went up quite a bit. I'm going to go sell drugs now instead of selling human beings. A lot less risk involved. I won't get, to, you know, 20 years to life. The good thing is I think it can act as a deterrence as far as stronger laws. That's a great question as far as, like, I, I, somebody asked me the other day, have you ever met anybody that's been rehabilitated? Somebody that has actually been a trafficker. I have not. I would
3: love to find that person and find out. But I'm not- i talking about rehabilitating Sandusky or using Sandusky's testimony to rehabilitate any other traffickers. It's in order to help other people recognize what's the signs inside his brain. What to look for. I'd love to get Sandusky into a study as a part of his sentence, where well, we can learn about this. where Because I'm assuming when this thing happened with Sandusky, the first thing I thought to myself was, oh, God, the next thing we're going to hear is how prevalent this was and we didn't know it, that coaches are, are sexually abusing, if not outright raping or pimping players on their own teams. What do you think of that idea? It would be certainly interesting to know what yeah. goes
4: on inside a person's head like that yeah. and what that looks like and how it ends up playing How
3: he out. sees the world and how he – how does the predator think so we can help the prey – avoid some of these pitfalls. Yeah, I mean, prevention is the bottom line, right? Yeah, Whatever we so. can do. And, and this, these are the complexities. For me, what all this brings me back to is this notion of, and we get honest about uh, sexuality, we get honest about ourselves. People will say to me in my business, do violent films disturb you? And I'll say, to a degree they do, but I said, not really, because violence, I think, is something that people don't feel they have a right to. If you go in and see a film, you know, if you go watch Charles Bronson in Death Wish kill all the bad guys, and you feel motivated and authorized to go out and commit some act of violence, you have some other pathology going into the film. Sexuality is different because sex is something people feel entitled to have, they feel they should be having. It's like there's a lot of men out there, because we tend to think of this as more of a man-on-woman crime, who they're predisposed to do this kind of thing if they're not careful. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, again, it comes back to things that have shaped their
4: thinking, have shaped their psyche. I don't, I don't, um, because I'm not a psychologist. I don't understand all of that. But when we talk about what we deal with specifically with children, it doesn't have anything to do with sex. It, it's violence right. against children. It's It's and interesting so you, it's, say, it's
3: inter- you say that. that. That's a very good point you make. That, that what is perceived as a, as a sex crime with this uh, child sex slavery thing, it's not sex at all. It's a violent act. It's violence. You're a father, Mm -hmm. and you have two of your own. You and your wife have two of your own biological children, Mm -hmm. and you've adopted four children. And how many boys, how many girls? I have two boys and four girls. You have four daughters. Uh, Are any of them biological? Uh, My oldest daughter. Your oldest daughter is your biological. How Mm -hmm. old is she? She's 24. So your oldest child is 24, and your youngest child is how old? Six. So, some of your children you have brought into your family and adopted during the course of your years doing this work. Were any of them as a result of doing this work? No. None. And not even from regions that this that, that have uh, from regions, yeah. My, so from so yeah. some of your so one of your daughters is from where, for example. My
4: daughter, who is going to be sixteen this week, is from China, and then uh, my youngest. Uh, What's the trafficking is situation like there? Same kind of situation. I mean, it's it's bad. And my my youngest daughter is from Vietnam.
3: One thing I do wonder is how much does the role of a very very strong and very very effective a history of feminism changed things in certain countries. Has feminism prevented th- this from becoming worse in parts of the world that it might have been? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean,
4: where there is vulnerability, there will be predators in many countries of the world and in many communities.
3: Um, women are vulnerable women by are, design. Yeah. Marginalized. Women yeah. and girls. And many times, children. But I guess my point is that your daughter's 24 years old, so when this organization, st- your, your work with them started... Ten years ago, your daughter was 14. So you've raised your family from a certain point, and many of them for their entire lives, inside that timeline. And I'm wondering, what do you talk to your children about, if at all? Or what do you and your wife talk about with them? But how do you handle the subject of sex as a father with your children?
4: Yeah, I think it depends on the age, obviously, being age appropriate. Even, like, my youngest kids don't know what daddy does. I mean, other than daddy helps children who are in big trouble. They understand slavery. You
3: know, that I understand. The youngest like, my
4: 15-year-old knows what the situation is. We've had great talks about it. She's actually started a Love 146 task force in her high school i think it's important but at the right age are you you ever thinking of having any more children or adopting more children probably you are yeah it's it's a good possibility really yeah we've just talked about it recently actually adopting one Mm -hmm. yeah why we just feel like as long as we can provide a home for somebody that doesn't have one if we can provide a family for someone that doesn't have one then let's do that what does
3: your wife think about
4: this work you're doing my wife's a rock star Right. Yeah, I mean, and especially because I travel so much and everything, oftentimes she becomes a You've single left mom. her with
3: six kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah, she's doing the hard work. So, um, But I remember the first phone call that I made that night when I came back from the brothel the first time, and I called her up, and she could tell right away on the phone. She's like, are you okay?
3: What has this done to you personally? What has it done to you? Because I will tell you that I've had things happen to me in my life, and they've made me lose my faith in people. I've had to battle with that. I'm not an optimist. I'm
4: hopeful. And I think those are two different things. I've seen th- literally the worst of humanity. The worst. Yeah. And so it, it'd be really easy to become super jaded, super cynical. But at the same time, I've also seen absolutely amazing things, great people. I, I remember I met the uh, director of a human rights agency in Cambodia, and she looked at me, she goes, you know what your problem is as Americans? And I looked at her, I sort of, sort of winced, thinking, okay, I can think of some things, but I know you're going to fill me in. And she goes, you don't think, you react." And I'm like, what do you mean? And she says, a lot of times you see some human rights abuse or whatever and everything. And instead of taking the time to think through solutions that are going to be effective and sustainable, you just react to it. And because you haven't put thought into it, sometimes your reaction causes more harm than good. And I kind of took that as a mandate as an organization to say, you know what, we need to be thoughtful. And it hasn't informed what ha- you do. It hasn't and, and the difficulty, though, with that is I live with this daily tension. We live with this daily tension of the emergency factor of children being sold and, and kind the of time that it takes component. to right and the time that it takes to create thoughtful to solutions that are gonna
3: work. Rob Morris is the president and co-founder of Love 146. There are many other people fighting to abolish child sex trafficking. Rachel Lloyd runs GEMS, Girls Educational and Mentoring Services, a New York-based organization that helps girls and young women leave the commercial sex industry in this country.
0: Like, it's not this foreign, strange, alien population. It's women and girls who've experienced an incredible amount of trauma and hardship in their lives, who have the same hopes and fears and dreams as everybody else.
3: You can hear Rachel's story Learn more about Rob Morris' organization, Love 146, and other resources at our website, heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.